My crew and I had just hopped off the streetcar in downtown Memphis. We're hoping a can't-miss barbecue spot was still open. But then we turned a corner and I froze. The building in front of me was unmistakable. Two stories, a big neon sign, a row of curtained windows. The Lorraine Motel. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement. It was right there that we lost him. April 4th, 1968. Has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. A man I named my son after. A man who told us that segregation harms us all. My crew went closer to take pictures. I couldn't look. I hung back, I averted my eyes. I can't see that building without seeing the famous photograph of him lying there. Memphis is haunted to me by everything we lost that day. Dr. King himself seemed to know it. When his plane touched down here, he said, either the movement lives or dies in Memphis. 48 hours later, he was dead. Today, Memphis is just as segregated as it was back then. But there's a new movement building here. And I came here to meet that movement's leader. Also a preacher's son. The call of injustice. It's not just a call for black folk to wake up. Not just a call for those oppressed to wake up. It's a call for all of us to wake up. Who came across my newsfeed one day. We're going to rally with our brothers and sisters who are whiter than we are. Uh, but they're being oppressed just like we are. He quoted my book at a rally. Something happens when, as Heather McGee calls it, there's a solidarity dividend built. A 26-year-old who was fighting for something nobody thought was possible. Something that would unite his deeply segregated city and prove that the movement for justice is actually alive in Memphis. From Higher Ground and Futuro Studios, I'm your host, Heather McGee. And this is The Sum of Us, a podcast documenting my journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. It's one of these gray days. Uh water matches the sky. I guess if I squint, I can see how this could have been something else at some point. This could have been a beautiful lake with thousands of people swimming and enjoying themselves. McKellar Lake is in southwest Memphis, maybe 10 minutes from downtown. Back in the 50s when Elvis used to come here, and go water skiing here and run his boats. We used to have bikini contests out here. You know. Jim Schmidis keeps a houseboat here. Unbelievable. I mean, this used to be the place. Used to be. Now, Jim won't let his kids swim out here. Because who wants to go water skiing when you fall into the lake and it's made out of 20% benzene? You know, your hair falls out, you lose all your toenail polish or whatever else. You don't want to swim in this lake, you know? I got to say, it's a little bit nerve-wracking to know that you really can't touch the water. 
In 2020, the Environmental Protection Agency found unacceptable levels of carcinogens and mercury in the water. A big sign warns people not to eat the plentiful blue catfish. It's really not good. I stuck my hand in yesterday, started getting a rash already. What are those factories? So across from here is an industrial place. They manufacture asphalt, cat food, all sorts of different things over there. There's a Valero refinery. Valero's Memphis plant makes gas, diesel, and jet fuel, processing 200,000 barrels a day. Not many people live over here, but there are a few neighborhoods. If you drive south a bit, you come upon some small, tidy plots and subdivisions. A Black neighborhood in southwest Memphis, where Miss Scotty Fitzgerald grew up. Scotty turned 70 this year. Greg, can you come and turn this down a little bit? He can, She's you know, the kind to hold your hand while you talk and say a prayer over you before you leave. And I want to have a word of prayer for y'all get on the road, okay. if you don't mind. Some of Scotty's earliest memories are of whites-only signs, of cutting school to march when Dr. King came to town. And her neighborhood, a planned community developed in the 1950s by a Black doctor named Joseph E. Walker. Okay, so the house where you grew up, how far away was the Valero refinery? You could see Valero from your front porch. What did it look like? You could see the pipes Mm -hmm. and the smoke coming out of the pipes, you know. And then you could smell them stinky rotten eggs. Mm -hmm. Anybody would come visit us, like, for Christmas, they would say, well, we knew we were close to you, our house, because we could smell it. (laughs) We could smell the eggs. That's how bad it was. How did that feel? I don't know how I felt about it. It was just life. And it is. Across the country, people of color are twice as likely as white people to live near toxins. When you were growing up and all this was happening, you were always sensing the pollution. Did you, first of all, did you call it pollution? I called it funny, because I didn't understand it. One by one, Scotty's friends and neighbors began to die early of cancer. So many that Scotty can't always recall their names. She had to phone a friend to help her remember. Look, I got one of my friends. We all grew up in the same neighborhood. Her name is Dorothy. I couldn't remember everybody's name that passed with cancer. And I told them about Peggy Sanford, Diane Stewart. You remember Jenny Lynn Taylor? Jenny Lynn Taylor just died. You said Brenda was the one that uh, we had just graduated high school. Brenda died about a year after we graduated, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Walker, they were all in their 20s. Michelle died. Yeah, Clara died of cancer. Darth, I appreciate you helping us because I just couldn't remember everybody. Mm. Mm. I'm so sorry, Miss Dorothy, for your loss of your brother. Oh, thank you so much. Every one of those names was a person that somebody loved. Together, they form a cluster of cancer cases. We can't know whether those cancers came from living close to this industrial zone, but we do know how environmental racism works. Segregation laws, restrictive zoning, housing discrimination, force generations of Black families into a corner. That same corner where toxic sites are placed after wealthier, whiter neighborhoods say, not in my backyard. 
Communities like Southwest Memphis are known as sacrifice zones. And these neighborhoods were what percentage black? All. All. How else did you experience segregation? Oh, my dear, everywhere. Uh, you talking about the Mason-Dixon land, darling. Uh, you had to drink colored water. They all, it both looked the same to me, but I mean, they had a sign saying colored and white water. A lifetime in the sacrifice zone prepared Miss Scotty for what happened next. For me, it started with a note on the door. The paper was all wrinkled up and, you know, it just looked like a third grader thing. And I didn't, I couldn't hardly believe it. And so who is this pipeline? We don't have anything to do with Bahia. This is Tennessee. That note on Scotty's door would bring the history of environmental racism she grew up with right back into the present. Scotty says the note she found on her door was from representatives of a pipeline project. Valero was working with Plains All-American, a $7 billion oil and gas pipeline and storage business, on a pipeline that would connect the Valero refinery in Memphis down to Bihalia, Mississippi. They wanted to build a 49-mile-long pipeline right through Miss Scotty's backyard. Then Plains started calling saying they wanted to survey her property. They'd even pay for it. Now, why'd you say no? Because I just didn't know why they wanted to get on my property. I didn't understand it. I know if you're wanting to survey my property and pay for it, I know you're not just coming to have a picnic. You want something. And what did they want to do exactly? They wanted to buy a portion of the land. And he tried to tell me it would be a small portion, 50 feet. He sent me a packet, and they offered me, started off with $3,000. And I told him, no. I said, I can't do that. You want to go up underground and put a pipeline underground. I said, don't these things, don't they eventually cause a lot of disruption and sickness and stuff? No means no. But Plains and Valero weren't taking no. When he called back the second time, I told him, Sonny, I said, I realize that you've got all these people behind you. I said, but let me tell you who I got in front of me, behind me and all over me. I have Jehovah God. I said, you talk to your guys and I'll talk to mine. And Sonny got so tired of me talking about God. He called me and started talking to me real rough. And you need to go on and blah, 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 blah. I mean, he talked to me something ugly. What the pipeline guys didn't understand was this land was a source of pride. Bought by Black housekeepers and Pullman car porters who had pooled their money. In fact, I have some of the receipts. Wow. And they saw all they yellow. Back then, it was almost impossible for Black people to get mortgages. The pipeline company didn't seem to understand the sacrifice and ingenuity it took to buy a home, which is why Scotty still carries her mother's yellowed bill of sale. So I told him, I said, first of all, I am old enough to be your grandmother, I bet you. And I don't care for how you're disrespecting me about something you don't understand. 
the company tried to play hardball. And when Scotty stood firm, they sued her. But let me tell you how God takes care of you. They took me to court, and this is how the paper read. Mr. Scotty and Linda Fitzgerald. Hmm. My name is Scotty Linda Fitzgerald. (laughs) They sued wrong, too. (laughs) I'm serious. Right before Christmas, knowing that the courts were going to close. Miss Scotty understood eminent domain when government needs private land for public use. If the city needed to build a sidewalk or a sewer line, they could force a sale of her property. But I didn't understand eminent domain coming for a private company. These are private people. So why should I give you my property for you to get richer? Meanwhile, the company was approaching Scotty's neighbors, too. Some of them took the money or got scared by the lawsuits, but others pushed back. Discussing their options at church and neighborhood association meetings, they invited their city and state representatives, but most politicians wouldn't even call them back. Meanwhile, further east, where the city unwinds past hundred-year-old trees and art museums and leafy university campuses, where the boulevards breathe a little wider, white Memphis was waking up to the threat of the Bahalia Pipeline. It wouldn't cut through their backyards or invite threatening calls from an oil company, but for them, the pipeline threatened something just as precious. What is it about the water in Memphis? Have you had any? But you can go down and you can drink that water straight. I don't think there's a better tasting water on the planet. Memphis is crazy about its water. Uh, Memphis has excellent tap water. It's been rated nationally. It is some of the highest quality water in the country, and Memphis can taste it. Oh, you couldn't even imagine tasting water like that. I'm talking about when you say good water, good water. See, every drop of rain that has fallen on Memphis for thousands of years has trickled down through layer after layer of clay, sand, and soil. The rain collects in this enormous well called the Memphis Sand Aquifer. It's the pride of the city, the source of its famously clean drinking water. I would say that I wasn't here a week and I knew about the water. Jim Kvark has lived here 41 years. He's a retired lawyer and helps lead a nonprofit called Protect Our Aquifer. I'm going to go get something just a second. When we arrived, Jim had coffee brewing and cookies in the oven. Jim gets incredibly excited talking about the Memphis sand aquifer. He showed me a picture, a cross-section of the geology that created this thing, and it is extremely cool, like a thousand feet below ground of a natural Brita filter. And what it shows is that the aquifer lies beneath Memphis a thousand feet deep with 2,000-year-old water. It takes a long time for that water to get down there, and it's filtered. The water that comes out of the tap in Memphis fell as rain before the Bible was written. It existed before plastic or industrial chemicals, before fertilizer runoff and oil refineries and factories that make asphalt and cat food. As Ward, our president, likes to say, it's the good bourbon, the aged bourbon. And how much water is there? The estimate, 57 trillion gallons. Whoa. If you were wise with the use, you'd have it for a thousand years, barring any calamities like An oil spill. (laughs) For example. 
So when did the Bahalia pipeline first come onto your radar? I'm going to say, like, spring of 2019. Now, Jim knew that even the safest pipelines have a certain failure rate. And Plains All-American had been criminally charged and convicted over past spills and agreed to pay hundreds of millions in settlement costs. Like for one spill off the coast of California in 2015 that shut down a state beach for months. A single drop of crude oil can contaminate a huge amount of water. And the Bihalia pipeline would carry 17 million gallons of oil a day. Right over the top of the Memphis aquifer. A single leak, even a small drip, let alone a catastrophic spill, ran the risk of poisoning the well forever. Jim's nonprofit sounded the alarm and manned their battle stations, along with other environmental groups like the Sierra Club and the Southern Environmental Law Center. Their tactics were... We got two or three opinion pieces in the newspaper. Extremely polite. There were open comment periods, and we commented voraciously. I would say a lot of well-worded legal letters, a lot of signs in front yards, a lot of social media promotion. Sarah Houston is the executive director of Protect Our Aquifer, where Jim is a board member. You know, it was kind of like screaming into the ether. We had a conversation in fall of that year. I asked Ward, what do you think our potential of stopping this pipeline was? And he said about 10%. It's like, you don't fight oil and gas. You're never going to win. <laughs> you can catch them in the act of some horrible pollution event and fine them and, you know, get some corrective action. But to stop an actual pipeline, I didn't know if that was possible. Despite the yard signs and the voracious commenting, the coalition of environmentalists didn't make much headway. Meanwhile, the Pipeline Project donated a million dollars to local charities and was promising three million a year in local tax revenue. And the Pipeline people had been in town over a year working their magic, spreading their money, having meetings that were more like, you know, advertisements than meetings. The Bihalia Pipeline was looking as inevitable as the hundreds of other pipelines in this country. Jim says the company showed up at local churches trying to win the favor of residents. We learned all this later, mostly from these ladies that came forward and they said, oh yeah, I was where they were given the bags with all the goodies in them at the church right after church service. Then, at one neighborhood association meeting, a representative from the pipeline said the quiet part out loud. When asked why the pipeline had to go through this particular neighborhood, Black Memphis, he replied that they were taking, quote, a path of least resistance. In the eyes of the company, Black Memphis was the path of least resistance, the sacrifice zone, where they thought no one would put up a fight. Least resistance? They were wrong. I see a lot of resistance here today. Two communities in segregated Memphis had been fighting the pipeline on different fronts. Environmental groups were focused on the aquifer. 
Black homeowners like Scotty Fitzgerald cared about the water and didn't want their neighborhood to be the path of least resistance. The two groups met at a forum the pipeline company held in 2020 in the wake of their growing PR disaster. I'm Katie. Um, I work for Plains, one of the companies building the pipeline. So before we start, I just want to ask, how many people heard about the quote from our contract land agent? Can I, have you guys heard about that, read about that? Plains apologized, but they didn't deny what their agent had said. So we had a land agent who used a poor choice of words. And I want to say first and foremost that I am sorry. I am sorry. That should not have happened. Jim and Sarah from Protect Our Aquifer were there. It was a bluebird October morning day, and it was chilly. So it ended up being a four-hour meeting. It was a tent setting. Uh, There were probably 50 to 70 local, very local neighborhood people. People got riled up. I'm saying, you saying you don't know what it's going to take for us to to, 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 to stop the pipeline? I don't. Can you come next time with that answer? No, I'm going to come with an answer of we still want to work with you because we want to build this pipeline. Some had true questions. Others were taking the opportunity to tell the pipeline company their thoughts. Don't want y'all to build a pipeline through this community, our community. Hours went by, and the billion-dollar corporations couldn't stop the meeting. And then a young African-American gentleman came to the microphone. He was in a suit and tie. He had a nicely trimmed fro. And then he just went on an incredible speech. The path of least resistance, that's what they call Boxtown. That's what they're calling Memphis. Know that we care about the air that we breathe. And he held space for a good while. And I mean, nobody could turn away from when he was speaking. You have to fight now. We have to fight now. We have to fight now. And you could tell, you know, not only was he passionate, but he was knowledgeable. That was Justin J. Pearson, the one and only. I'm Justin J. Pearson. I'm 26 years old. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Everyone has a story about Justin J. Pearson, including me. He's the 26-year-old I mentioned at the beginning who had quoted my book at a rally. He's the reason I heard about the fight in Memphis. Hey, Justin, it's Heather McGee. I met Justin at his former high school. Hi, Heather McGee, how are you? An all-black pride of Southwest Memphis. I'm so well. I'm, uh, I'm right out front of Mitchell High School. Okay, I'm coming down. In the very neighborhood they called the path of least resistance. The halls are lined with class photos, some 50 young Black men in tuxedos and young Black women all wearing the same string of pearls. That guy in the middle, that's me. What does that say? Justin Pearson, uh, President Valedictorian. Boom. Yeah, that happened. So when did you first hear about the Bahalia Pipeline? 
And how did you decide to take action? So first heard about it on Facebook, the Mitchell High School alumni Facebook page. (laughs) I don't think that without the summer of 2020 being what it was, that post would have had the same impact. We were in the wake of George Floyd's lynching and Breonna Taylor's lynching and Ahmaud Arbery's lynching. We were having serious conversations about what it meant that people of color were disproportionately being killed by the coronavirus and asking the question of why. Why was this happening? And we learned this word, comorbidities. Comorbidities like lung and heart diseases and cancers, the same problems that had plagued the sacrifice zone where Justin grew up. All of this was on his mind at that October meeting. Did you, you were planning to speak? You, no? Why not? I was, I was listening. Mm-hmm. Got moved. That's what happened. The spirit moved me. Had you thought about the aquifer? No. I always brag about Memphis having the best water in the world, because we do, scientifically. <laughs> I never thought about, like, why we had the best water in the world. You never question really where it comes from and never think about, like, somebody messing it up. My dad's church was in Midtown, which is a more white part of the town. When we moved back, I'd seen these blue signs protect our aquifer. Did I ever Google it? Did I ever look it up? Never. I was like, oh, this is for white people, right? This is obviously something else they got going on. And it's not involving us, right? Until you learn that it is. (laughs) When you were younger, What was your impression of who an environmentalist was? Oh, it's a white person in a tree, hugging a tree, something like that. In college, it was somebody who wore Patagonia, right? Like, that's an environmentalist. The narrative that we have in our community and communities is different. We didn't talk about, like, climate change, right? We talked about the things that were actually more personal and visceral to you as an individual. The fight for the environment isn't about some theoretical climate being improved or or, or the globe being greener or some polar bears. It's actually to stop black kids with asthma from dying 10 times more than white kids, right? Or Scotty Fitzgerald having to fight for their land because of people trying to build pipelines through it, right? Like that's actually the environmental justice fight. Turns out Justin J. Pearson is a natural born organizer. His dad's a pastor and his mother's a teacher. She told me he used to carry a briefcase around in grade school. He was the kind of kid who everybody knew would be somebody. After speaking at that meeting in October 2020, Justin formed a group called MCAP, Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. We started to meet four or five times a week for two or more hours every day, doing research on oil and gas and pollution. And these early meetings, are they all Black folks? Yeah, there's no relationship yet with Protect Aquifer. Though we're like, we need to get with that group because they knew something. And they began to tell us, where are the places that we can jam up the gears? The white-led group Protect Our Aquifer knew the law, the regulatory process, how to get an audience with the city council. The Black organizers, MCAP, knew that wasn't enough. A lot of our partners' focus was on 
How can you write really good letters? Or how might you have conversations behind closed doors with elected officials to try and shake them to care about what's happening? And our strategy was different. MCAP's strategy was to put the people most directly impacted by the pipeline at the front of the effort to stop it. Justin knew that not everyone might care about Black folks' land being taken, but they would care about the aquifer. The work was to tie those together, to where it became inseparable to say that you care about water, but you don't care about Scotty Fitzgerald. Because if you do not care about the folks who are being exploited, the ramifications of it will be universal. Making the movement Black-led wasn't always easy. The more established environmental groups were pretty used to doing things their way. The change in power, it's not easy to maintain. And so whether it is press releases, making sure things show up a certain way, to in meetings, making sure that the voices of Black women speak first. Those moments were lovingly tense. Were there any moments or experiences where you thought, well, this is something we're going to have to deal with? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things, me being interrupted in meetings. Mm -hmm. It was consistent. I could be saying an idea or asking something, and one of my white, typically male colleagues from the environmental groups would interrupt me. And I haven't always wanted to address it. But one of my colleagues, an amazing black woman, she called me after one meeting. And she said, I didn't like how so-and-so kept interrupting you, and you need to call them and tell them. And so I would call people. I'd say, hey, you know, during the meeting when I was talking about X, Y, or Z thing, you kept interrupting me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to need you to not do that. And how'd that go? Um, folks, each time were receptive. And super apologetic, okay. which also was unexpected. Mm -hmm. And there probably may have been something about my tone. What was your tone? I was pretty intense. It took some getting used to, but ultimately the coalition managed to stick together. And MCAP's members brought new energy to the fight. I'm kind of like the town choir. Um, I share information. Pearl Walker is a Black hairstylist who specializes in natural hair care. She's the unofficial cheerleader for her middle-class Black neighborhood in Southwest Memphis and the environment chair of the local NAACP chapter. As soon as she heard Justin speak, she started volunteering with MCAP. They had their shit together. You know, they were emailing and then they had the website and they were keeping us posted and it was consistent and they would say, okay, we need to do this for the council meeting on this day and let's get the emails. And they did canvassing door to door and phone banking. And, and so every time there was a meeting or action in a march, I was there. MCAP had organized the voices so often left out of this conversation. I view Mother Nature synonymous to God. And so to violate Mother Nature, I just think that you are violating God's greatest creation. I would get in the car, rain, sleet, or snow, knocking on doors, informing people about the project, letting them know that they've been sued, and then telling them that we were here to help them fight. I lose my voice every single week because there is no person I want to talk to. There's no group that I won't meet with. There's no individuals I won't go and see. And it's the same for our whole team. We're just going nonstop and everything's coming to like a fever pitch. 
As momentum built, hometown celebrities started to get on board. People who are superstars. Justin Timberlake tells people to sign the petition. Danny Glover, Sybil Shepherd flies into Memphis to march alongside us. It becomes, it is a movement. Local politicians saw which way the wind was blowing, especially after maybe the most high-profile environmentalist in the country came to town. This pipeline project is a reckless, racist ripoff. Former senator from Tennessee, Vice President Al Gore. When the pipeline representatives said, this is the path of least resistance. That was a gaffe because it, he told the truth accidentally. Least resistance? I see a lot of resistance here today. Miss Scotty Fitzgerald, from the beginning of our episode, was there. Justin brought me to the park, and he wanted me to get up and talk. It was such a mixed crowd. It was so many colors and people there that was pushing, and that was for us. Have you ever seen that before in your life, all those white people? I cried because I wouldn't have thought that anybody would care. When I looked out and saw the bouquet of people, and that's what God loves, is a bouquet. Everything he made is diverse. Despite the diversity at that rally, Memphis today remains deeply segregated. Some neighborhoods are 100% Black, and some neighborhoods are almost equally white. But this fight had united the city. It got working people to volunteer on top of their day jobs. No longer appearing before city council was just old white guys. But here comes the ladies. Here comes Justin. Here comes a whole ream of people that are questioning what, what's going on here. Are you really going to approve this? This movement got people like Protect Our Aquifer's Jim Kavarik and MCAP's Pearl Walker to work together. It was a cause that people had in common and wanted to get on board with. It was a cause that everybody valued. I think the core issue was our water could be compromised. People were turning deaf ears to that. And it was like they couldn't believe it. Like we were being extra or sensational or something. No, we could be like Flint, but worse. They worked together to protect a resource that mattered to everyone and a community that hadn't always. There's no way to win when we're not doing it together. The universality of water does connect white people and rich people. Like, but know that it is being threatened because Black folk are being targeted because of a history that has said that it is okay. And if you accept that the suffering of Black people or poor people is okay, you are ensuring that your own suffering persists. After months of rallies and marches and meetings and speeches, the campaign was preparing to take a much-needed pause for the 4th of July weekend. Justin was at the grocery store on that Friday when his phone rang. He looked down. It was one of his allies on the city council. And he said, uh, hey, I'm just calling to tell you the pipeline's been canceled. Child, listen, you talking about 
screaming to the top of my lungs. Like, oh my god! Oh my god! That was, has to be like one of the happiest moments of my entire life. Like, seriously, like, we did it? Who'd you call first? Mommy, yeah. Yeah, hands down. I didn't expect us to win like that the way we did. I felt like it was kind of like unbelievable. Pure disbelief. So it was just like Friday afternoon caught us completely off guard. And so we ended up convening down in South Memphis at Alonzo Weaver Park where a lot of the rallies had been held and, you know, just all like hugging and like, oh my God, we did this. Some viewed it as a battle of David versus Goliath. Friday night, the company pushing to build the controversial Bahelia pipeline backed off. In their statement, Plains All-American didn't mention the grassroots movement that had swept across Memphis. Plains stopped pursuing the project, a spokesperson said, due to lower U.S. oil production resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. After a victory that most people didn't think would happen, MCAP regrouped and renamed itself Memphis Community Against Pollution, not just the pipeline. What else can this movement do? Everything. <laughs> Anything we put our minds to, we can do it. Uh, what we ultimately want to do, right, is to ensure those things become true, that your air is clean, right, that your water is safe, that the land that you grow in uh, is safe as well, to provide peace to some Black folk. And by providing peace to some Black folk, this movement stands to benefit everyone in Memphis. Here's the powerful point. If I am invested in the places that are being most harmed, then I'm actually ensuring a better quality of life for myself. Justin's point is backed up by research. Studies show that the more racially integrated a city is, the less pollution it has. When you have more integrated communities, you have white folks living near black folks. Those same systems that would put a toxic release inventory facility in a 99.9% Black African-American community will not do that in a community that's 60% white. In highly segregated cities, when the powerful can dump pollution out of sight in the so-called sacrifice zone, they tend to allow more pollution. So much, in fact, that it doesn't stay there. Our air doesn't have a point at which it stops and says, I've left the black part of town. Or our water doesn't have a point at which it stops and says, oh, I've left the poor part of town. We all live under the same sky. It was Dr. King who wrote that all men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. An injury to one will eventually become an injury to all. That mutuality is something that we've often lost sight of in America, especially since we lost Dr. King. But the truth of it is inescapable. And 54 years later, right here in Memphis, a group of people who didn't know each other has rediscovered the power of that idea and used it to save their city.
next time on The Some of Us. I go to Florida, where you can wind up with a felony for a lot of things. Disturbing a lobster trap is a felony. Trespassing on the pier, felony. Getting caught in a construction site, felony. Almost 4% of Florida's population is behind bars, with devastating consequences for their democracy. But a movement based on love won voting rights for over a million people. We, the people, decided that something wasn't right with felon disenfranchisement. We decided it wasn't fair. We decided that when the debt is paid, it's paid. On our next episode. From Higher Ground, this is The Sum of Us. Created and hosted by me, Heather McGee, and produced by Futuro Studios. Our producers are Kasim Shepard, Ryan Kailoth, Emil Sequiros, Joaquin Cutler, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with help from Liliana Ruiz, Sophia Lowe, Susanna Kemp, and Alyssa Vladimir. Our senior producers are Nicole Rothwell, Jeannie Montalvo, and Fernanda Echavari. We're edited by Sandy Ratley and Maria Garcia. Executive produced for Futuro by Marlon Bishop. Mixing by Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Research by Lynn Cantor and Carolyn Lipka. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Our original music and theme song is by The Sacred Souls. Join us for the next episode of The Sum of Us, a podcast in search of hope and solidarity. 